Hello and welcome to Russians with Attitude. The most interesting news of the last week from the Russian perspective. For some time I wasn't feeling it, but now, today, I once again feel a great storm of energy in the air. Energy that is about to be unleashed. It might be a low-scale nuclear exchange, or a counterattack, or assassination attempt of a world leader, or maybe a little explosion at Google's data center. Shh, can you hear that? Tum, tum, tum. This is a shaman beating his drum. Tum, tum, tum. What does he mean by that? Anyway, let's look at today's topics. Unfortunately, Kirill can't make it today. Press F to resurrect him for the next episode. Today's newsreel will be Su-27 or Su-27 fighter jet destroyed an American drone Reaper MQ-9 without firing a single shot. Scottish freak of a woman. <laughs> I mean, United Kingdom's Minister of Defense, Annabel Goldie, decided to send Ukraine special rounds with depleted uranium in them. International Criminal Court issued arrest warrants for Vladimir Putin and Maria Lvova-Belova for the worst human rights offense in history. Chinese President Xi Jinping has finally visited Moscow, a possible second wave of mobilization in Russia. I will end this episode with an experimental segment of an audiobook of my own making. There is a book that I haven't read by Eduard Limonov, Disciplinarny Sanatorii. Disciplinary Sanatorium. It was written back in 88. I found it very relevant for today's world. It was never translated to English. So I've made an attempt and I will read you the first few chapters. He begins his work Passion Orwell. Then he goes on to describing his theory of soft and hard violence. I think it's pretty interesting. All right, so let's look at the news. The first topic, the hilarious incident between Su-27 and Reaper MQ-9. So there was an American drone flying over Black Sea, some 60 kilometers from Sevastopol, and a Russian fighter jet spotted it. The pilot decided to be a little creative about it. He started bumping into him, bumping into his rotor. He flew over the Reaper. By the way, it's uh, not just a regular drone. It's a huge machine, it's a huge uh, unmanned plane that costs uh, $30 million. A Russian fighter jet flew over Reaper, dumping its fuel on American drone, humiliating him and maybe deactivating some fancy electronic systems. I don't know what was it, either the fuel or possibly the bumping that led this fancy 30 million drone to be no longer really operational. It still could fly, I guess, but uh, American command decided to drown it in the Black Sea. A few days later, uh, Russian forces decided to 
will extract the pieces of this drone from the Black Sea, recover them, maybe examine them, or reverse engineer. Unfortunately, our military communication is still not very well encrypted, so Westoids got their hands on our radio traffic discussing the extraction of this fallen drone. Апельсин, я ежик. Апельсин, я ежик. Прием. And so they did. Hilarious accusations ensued. It's amateurish, non-professional. How dare you destroy our spy drone that was involved in planning an attack on Crimea? I much rather prefer the battle to be with Americans directly, or indirectly, because it's an unmanned drone, but still. Compare the elegant news of pissing, literally pissing fuel on an American drone over Black Sea to the meat grinder in Bakhmut. Right, uh, the most important news for some reason is that Putler is now excommunicado. The arrest warrants were issued by the International Criminal Court. You might wonder, what is it? ICC is placed in the Hague. That's how the Dutch pronounce the name of the city. Gaga in Russian. This whole organization is a mess. For starters, people think that it's a United Nations organ. It's not. Not that I have any respect for UN, but come on. There is an international criminal justice placed in the Hague by UN, and there is a International Criminal Court, which is not a UN organization, but it's also placed in the Hague. UN court is headed by an American lawyer. The ICC is headed by a Polish lawyer. You can't make this up. And right now wants to arrest Putin. Sounds scary. Especially if we were to ignore that International Court is not a very serious organization. Let's get back to 2018. So five years ago, they went too far, started digging deep into the territory of uh, American war crimes, torture by US military in Afghanistan, for example. And then National Security Advisor John Bolton responded on behalf of the US to the ICC. We are not going to cooperate with the ICC. We will not assist and certainly will not, will not join it. We are going to let it die its own death. If anything, the International Criminal Court is already effectively dead to us. The judges of the ICC in The Hague were threatened with uh, sanctions by America and then decided to stop these investigations into the American crimes against their humanity. Uh, Americans are not respecting ICC. It does not investigate war crimes. It's very politically biased. And now, let's look at this case. Why Putin is now being wanted by this very dangerous organization in the Netherlands. They blame Putin for stealing Ukrainian children. Out of all things that happened in this war, who were those Ukrainian children taken by Russia? Well, it's uh, children of Donetsk and Lugansk regions, of Zaporozhye and Kharkov and Kherson. Russian children 
but it doesn't really matter if they are Ukrainian or Russian, although I can assure you they all speak Russian. What matters is those are frontline regions, so it's unsafe for children to be at the frontline. Russian government created summer camps inside Russia for those kids. And they did bus tours, you know, to the mountains, to the uh, sanatoriums and stuff like that. But Ukrainians, of course, were extremely mad about this. Ukrainians were calling it abduction of children and uh, that they are still in our fridges and asphalt and washing machines and also babies. It boils down to this. Ukrainian military was trying to kill as many children in its former regions. But some volunteers, some kids organizations from Russia decided to invite those children to a summer camp, to a safer place. And that's why Putin is now being wanted by ICC. Ah, and also there were orphans, right? Orphanages in Donetsk, in Kherson, Zaporozhye, Lugansk. And the problem with orphanages during war is that they are not doing the best. They are not well funded because there is a war and all the funds go to war. It's also very unsafe when Ukrainians are shooting rockets everywhere. So, of course, those orphanages need to be transported to a safer territory and preferably adopted by the families. And that's what happened. Almost 500 Ukrainian orphans have been adopted by Russian families. And that's a part of the accusation against Putin, his vilest deed in history. I guess for an orphan to be adopted by a family is a wish come true, but it's also a grave human right offense. Killing Ukrainian soldiers and sometimes civilians is alright by international criminal court, but saving children is wrong. This is an inverted morality and it, I think the only reason why they even try to grasp at this straw is because the West always wants to somehow vilify its enemy with the use of children. Remember Bana Alabet? That's a great example. Actually, Bana Alabet, who was six years old, probably did not write any tweets in English. Still, well, it was more legitimate, I guess, uh, this psyop was. Well, yeah, there was a Syrian girl and she was scared from Aleppo, and Aleppo was uh, a front line. It, uh, it was a place where the main battle happened. Bana wanted to be a teacher, but she stopped going to school because of the war which destroyed it. You, you, you get it, right? There is a beautiful child, he or she is in danger. But in this case, orphans being adopted to families, kids being taken to summer camps away from the front line. And that's when ICC thought that Putin has crossed the line. But alright, let's go to the next one. There's talk about mobilization, a second wave of mobilization in Russia. Because uh, when Kamate 
military enlistment offices in some regions are again sending out summons or paveskas to citizens for quote clarifying the personal data of military service personnel i think it's probably correct why because partial mobilization that took place in the fall the first wave revealed that uh, russian военкоматы enlistment offices are in pretty bad shape outdated databases lost folders untrue data on those who are on the military registration list all of it has led to idiotic mistakes when summons повескас were sent out to non-military women the deceased and uh, invalids or even those who are already serving and that we have in common with ukraine uh, right now russian military is trying to improve the system and to digitize the information so this explanation that they want to clarify personal data i think looks logical besides i have not heard of actual mobilization happening so i guess it's not time yet but of course the spring and autumn in russia are conscription seasons for mandatory service of 18 year olds and 20 year olds and right now this age that you can get conscripted was increased to 30 years from 18 to 30 i guess it sounds kind of scary isn't it mandatory conscription especially if you don't have it in your country but believe me it's not in the soviet times maybe 50% of all men served in the 90s it was maybe 30 2000s it was around 20 in tens it was maybe 10 so right now you don't really see people going to the military for a mandatory service and the reasons vary the general health of the nation is a bit worse than it was before the военкоматы and the military officers are not as interested in hunting down every single one they have a plan such as you got to bring 5000 conscripts from this region they do it and they are satisfied they don't want anyone else it might change because of the war but uh, when i was 18 i did not pass the some health exam and was not conscripted and most of my friends were also in this category although we are not some extremely sick people so if you have at least some minor deficiency in you you would probably not get conscripted if you uh, study in university you will not get conscripted if you finish university with a military academy you will never get conscripted because you will already receive military occupation because we don't have Kirill on our show we will not actually discuss uh, Bakhmut and uh, other frontline news oh yeah that's a fun one the british government has announced that it will provide ukraine with armor piercing rounds containing depleted uranium a byproduct of the uranium enrichment process needed to create nuclear weapons the rounds have radioactive properties it will not cause a nuclear reaction well they claim that um, it's an armor piercing round so uh, the depleted uranium increases the momentum of the round and it just keeps going through the armor at an extraordinarily high speed 
I'm not sure what to make of it. I, I'm not a nuclear expert. Maybe it's not a great idea to use uranium and it will probably pollute the land. Let's just look at the person, the people in charge, the woman of the hour, Annabelle Goldie, the Scottish politician and a current sitting minister of state for defense of Great Britain. This is incredible. I could not believe my eyes when I saw this woman. This is much interesting than uranium, probably, but we'll see about that. Annabelle Goldie, Baroness Goldie, a Scottish politician, government whip. This is absolutely bizarre. She looks like an evil version of Trump. But it's not about her looks, which are, of course, terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. Let's look at her life of this terrifying woman, a baroness, whip. Do you understand how weird British are? Oh no, Great Britain is a normal democracy. Monarchy just for show, you know. Queen is just a figure, pop culture figure. It's not a monarchy, it's a normal democracy. And <laughs> it's clearly, patently not. It's a very weird society for sure. Let's look at the Scottish Conservative Party. This woman, Annabelle Goldie, is also former leader of the Scottish Conservative Party, elder of the Church of Scotland. Personal life is blank, so she has never been married and does not have children. But look, maybe it's just a coincidence. Yeah, she looks weird, she has a weird biography, she has a no personal life at all, she's also an elder of the Church of Scotland, current Minister of Defense, who is sending rounds with uranium to Ukraine. But maybe it's just an odd person. Maybe let's look at the other Scottish Conservatives, the leader of Scottish Conservative Party. In 2011, she resigned as the leader of Scottish Conservatives. And there was another woman that uh, replaced her. Ruth Davidson. Let's look at her. Oh man, it does not get any better. Let's look at the similarities of the two. I want to be acquainted with the Scottish political life, right? Oh look, she's also a baroness. Can you believe that? She's a baroness. Ruth Davidson of Lundin Links. That's the first one. Let's look at uh, something else. Maybe there ideological position or personal life similarities. Apart from that, they're both uh, leaders of Scottish Conservatives. Scottish independence referendum. She campaigned for the Union in 2014 because she loved the wonderful messiness of these islands. No comment. Personal life. And she's a lesbian. And look at this. She also has short hair and extremely mannish appearance. She's also a baroness, she's also a Scottish Conservative, and she's also a member of Church of Scotland. So I'm guessing the Church of Scotland is not very Christian organization, and all those people are part of it. Alright, that's about enough for the news that I found interesting. We will do another seed trip soon with uh, military updates. I can also do them, but I think it would be a worse quality than Kirill is capable of doing. So we will wait for that little addendum. Meanwhile, 
I started translating Eduard Limonov's work from 1988. He wrote it back in France. It's called Disciplinary Sanatorium. And as far as I'm aware, it was not translated in any other language and it solely exists in Russian. So I wanna rectify this injustice and make a little audiobook out of it. And let's see how that goes. Eduard Limonov is a Russian writer, creator of National Bolshevik Party in Russia, a poet, a punk, a very interesting figure and very unique, I guess, in the scene of more morose and serious Russian thinkers. Chapter 1. The Hard Violence of Old Winton Smith, the hero of the novel 1944, believed that he was born in 44 or 45. That means that he and I are of the same age. Since 1984 has long since whizzed by and nothing resembling the society created by Orwell's imagination can be found on the surface of the globe, I decided to reread the adventures of a man my age. The plot is silly. In presumably Britain, in presumably 1984, Extramarital sex between party members is forbidden, and Winston violates this ban and is supposed to be punished by five years' hard time. He keeps a diary, 25 years of prison or death. He rents a visiting room with Julia above an antique store in the Prowl's quarter, from, as it later turns out, a thought police agent. With Julia, he succumbs to villain O'Brien's provocation and conspires verbally against the party, which also is punished by death. He acquires Goldstein's banned book, Death Penalty Again. Smith is arrested, tortured. His will is suppressed. In the last chapter, he is released free, but it is clear to the reader that immediately outside the book he will be arrested and liquidated. It is also clear that the silly plot is used by Orwell to show the reader the society of the future, the Britain slash Oceania of 1984, whether the author considered the product of his work a prophecy or only a possible model of the future is irrelevant. Smith did not evoke sympathy in me and I disliked him in the highest degree. In fact, he is a standard character of English literature. The little man, five false teeth and ulcer on his leg. Forgetting Oceania, we see a typical middle-aged English clerk. Recall T.S. Eliot. I grow old, I grow old, I shall wear the bottoms of my trousers rolled. Or the protagonist of Graham Greene's novel The Human Factor, Castle, the Soviet spy. Orwell assures us that his clerk's horrific story plays out in the future, in 1984. A careful reader understands that the book is conveniently set in the past. It was written in 1948 and largely set in 48. The rocket bombs that were dropping on London every dozen pages bring to mind the V2s launched by the Germans in World War II. Winston and Julia meet at the Bell Tower in the area where an atomic bomb fell 30 years ago. 
gang of young men wearing shirts of the same color and stout men in black uniforms with iron padded boots and clubs in their hands are borrowed from German history from 1920 to 1945. The blue and the black jumpsuits of the book's heroes also belong there. The floating fortresses of Oceania are of course copies from the American flying fortresses, American bombers. Three-year plan and colonies for homeless children are unmistakably borrowed from the Soviet history. It has long been established that Goldstein, with his goatee, is written off of Trotsky. Two minutes of hate and hate week are most likely borrowed from the rituals of some Freudian sect. The great purges of the 50s and 60s in the book no doubt trace their origins to Stalin's purges. As absurd as these purges may seem from the West, they bear a consequence and the necessity of the struggle for power. In order to hold power, Stalin had to eliminate his rivals. To not seem like anti-revolutionary, he had to invent all those incredible betrayals and connections with foreign intelligence services. And he achieved his goal. In 1984, there is an abundance of details of our past and only a couple of details of the supposed future. First of all, the famous television screen, of which it is known that you can turn it off. O'Brien, a member of the party's high hierarchy, had the right to turn his TV off for half an hour. At the time of writing this novel, television already existed, albeit in an embryonic, semi-experimental state. Orwell had chosen the new invention as the main character of the future and the main mean of control. He had made some remarks in the first pages about police helicopters hovering over the streets, helicopter police looking inside the windows, spying on the citizens. But realizing how silly this method was, he corrected himself. In Stalin receiving and transmitting television sets in the homes of party members is theoretically possible. However, not to mention the cost of the project, the information processing center would have to be monstrously large and maybe half of the population would have to watch the other half of the population. Even computers don't really solve this problem since spying on all of your movements and texts via computers is a Sisyphean labor, not to mention the aimlessness of this whole endeavor, observation. In the absence of a telescreen, does the modern civilized European or American allow himself extravagant behavior within the walls of his apartment? The most that the big brother or his employees can expect to see while spying is sex scenes and scandals. Modern television certainly controls the population, but not by watching you, but by showing. Let me interject here. In this case, of course, Limonov was not very on point here, and Orwell with his telescreens is probably more right than Limonov ever knew, because well, spying on you, on even if you don't have any extravagant behavior, is what is happening right now. But all right, this intro to the book—it's basically a preface—was written in '88, so bear that in mind. Let's continue with the translation. 
you speak also belong to Orwell's present. Vulgarization, simplification and mixing of languages is a normal phenomenon. It happens everywhere, with all the languages of the world at once. For example, the infiltration of English into other languages. Franglais, French spoiled by English. It exists, and its, its bridgehead is expanding. But not with the help of men in black uniforms and with batons in their hands. But absolutely voluntarily, according to necessity and the wishes of the masses. The basic premise on which the intrigue of this super book is based on is that in the future extramarital sex will be punishable by five years in the penal camps. And this little tidbit Orwell did not borrow it from past experience because the implausibility is strikingly obvious. Family is celebrated by all regimes. The family unit was sacred for the Soviet and Hitler regimes, for Pitan yesterday. Raymond Barr and Reagan today. Sex was a legal and deserved right of the German soldier, officer or party official. Brothels accompanied the German army. The second man in the USSR, after Stalin, Lavrey Tiberia, head of the formidable NKVD, drove around the streets of Moscow in a car looking for beautiful young girls. Everyone knows that a sexually satisfied citizen is less inclined to take interest in social problems. It would seem that the party already in power should be interested in having the population to sublimate some of its energy. Although, of course, power always prefers orderly sex unions. Only a crazed and insane power is suddenly capable of banning sex even if only for members of the ruling party, and severely punishing violations of the ban. Orwell's phrase describing Winston and Julia's sexual act. It was a strike against the party. It was a political act. It's nonsense. It sounds beautiful, like chance meeting on a dissecting table of a sewing machine and an umbrella. Incidentally, there is a certain inarticulate, volatile similarity between Lotramon's Sons of Maldarora and 1984, as one nightmare dream is just like another. Orwell's characters have no ambitions, not even human thirst for power or hatred for those who challenge this power. They obey machine logic. It is not clear why O'Brien chooses to victimize this insignificant little Winston Smith, why he and the thought police drag Smith into the net like FBI agents dragging an American senator into a scandal in order to bring him down. By the middle of the book it emerges that Smith has been followed from the very first page. They were reading his diary, following him in the prose quarters. They were watching him through a TV screen hidden behind an engraving, his acts of love with Julie. The gothic villain O'Brien in brackets, the image of an inquisitor investigator borrowed from Dostoevsky. He addresses Smith with a theatrical speeches, excusable only to a schoolboy twisting the arms of another schoolboy in a dark corner. When you finally surrender to us, it must be down out of your free will, he hisses. It is impossible to believe the seriousness of the superpower, one of whose top officials behaves like an operatic villain. The famous scene of the failed torture by rats is done by Matthew Orwell in the manner of Edgar Poe, obsolete and patriarchal.
more and more people are dealing with Smith as the end of the book approaches. Why are they fiddling with a very coarse man with five false teeth, unable to bend over without bone pain, a prematurely aged official of the Ministry of Truth? In fact, Smith is a law-abiding citizen. He goes to work carefully and even finds a certain pleasure in his work. There is no need to suppress Smith's will. It is suppressed from the first page of the book. All O'Brien, the Oceania state in his person, the party and big brother, and Orwell do, as follow an already wingless fly on the glass, catch it now and then pluck off one leg at a time, release it again and examine how will it behave. If the fly, Winston Smith, may be convincing in his insignificance, Big Brother, O'Brien and the party, tearing off its legs is, I think, literary failure. Mr. Orwell lacked talent. Clearly, he wanted to make a book about pure violence, but it turned out to be a caricature, a future in the style of housewives novels. The Divine Marquise in 120 Days of Sodom succeeded far more to the same end. As for me, I prefer the futurologist Herbert Wells and his time machine. The creator of 1984 was inspired by a misunderstood foreign non-English past. It seemed to Orwell that the societies of German and Stalinist Russia were bound together exclusively by violence. State violence was undoubtedly a necessary element in the structure of both regimes, but the amount and the significance of violence is exaggerated both by Orwell back in 1948 and by foreigners in general, I mean not residents of Germany or the USSR, in brackets, hell is other people. Mythological totalitarian systems were erected by the West in its own imagination with innocent grace. In order to arouse the hatred necessary to fight the enemy, you need to demonize your enemy, and as a result, the real countries and systems are replaced by monsters. By cutting off the real motivations for behavior, only phenomenon of ugly abstract cruelty remains. The party in 1984 is as brutal and vicious as savage Indian scalpers in westerns. If we forget about the worldwide acclaim of 1984 and try to evaluate this book, by the standards of literature, one is surprised by the infantilism and melodramatic nature of this book. Qualities inherent to pop literature, never declared as such, 1984 is written in fact in the genre of the bestseller. I can see why the Book of the Month Club demanded to remove chapters from Goldstein's book along with an afterword that explained the principles of newspeak. Only those two pieces are not written in pop style. It's also fitting that 1984 inspired pop star David Bowie to create his show. 1984 is the future, as imagined by a popular imagination nurtured by cheap newspaper myths, always half a century behind reality. Chapter 2 The New Soft Violence Soft methods of controlling the masses began long before the end of World War II. Suppressing the populations of other countries, Hitler seduced the Germans with National Socialism, 
while imprisoned in Landsberg Fortress. Back in 1924, he sketched out a model of the popular Volkswagen car and the blueprint for the ideal home of the average German. Five rooms with a bath. He seemed to intend to rule his nation with gentle violence. Frightened by the manifestations of its own cannibalism in the First and above all in the Second World Wars, quote-unquote civilized humanity recoiled from hard regimes to the regimes of soft violence. Plus, th there were two new crucial factors. The deterrent effect of nuclear weapons and the emergence of new production technologies that made it possible to feed the masses. In the essence of hard violence, there is a physical repression of a man. Soft violence is based on the encouragement of his own weaknesses. The ideal of hard violence is to turn the world into a maximum security prison. The ideals of soft violence is to turn a man into a pet. Soft violence does not operate with black uniforms, batons or torture. In its arsenal, there are false goals of material well-being, the fear of unemployment, the fear of the economic crisis, the fear and shame of being poorer or worse than the neighbors, and finally just laziness, human inertia. Suicides of the unemployed are an example of this mighty grip of soft violence, the degree of psychological pressure, the incitement to prosperity. Prosperity to which a citizen of civilized parts of the planet is subjected to. In the showcase of modern civilization, the screens of televisions, computers and minitels glow enticingly. A minitel is a French communication system from the 80s that combined television, telephone and computer. The public is dazzled by the abundance of information, by the power of their cars, that propelled them in a rush of collective madness of movement. A portrait of Big Brother on the walls would look miserable compared to the increasingly powerful tricks of publicity. Blinded by the jugglery of procedures, to the rattle of the drums of statistics, brackets, they decisively favor relative mathematics, resplendent numbers which the public has no time to understand to the rumble of increasingly worse quality pop music. The civilized inhabitants of happy developed countries make their speedy journey from birth to retirement. This lucky western denizen likes to repeat to himself that an unusually high material standard of living has been only achieved in Europe, the United States, Australia, mostly white countries on the planet while the rest of the poor non-white world leads a miserable existence. Brackets, so much contempt in the term underdeveloped countries. The civilized man is panic-stricken, he's living on credit, and often at the expense of those despised underdeveloped countries. Gigantic yield of interest on his loans, that is why he surrenders himself every day to the patronage of the guardian state, losing or abandoning himself the basic human privileges inherent to our biological species, independence and free will. For his obedience he is rewarded with substitutes. His dreams of travel are embodied in organized tourism, 
His thirst for adventure can be safely satisfied by turning on the TV or going to the cinema. Police novels and movies with an inordinate amount of revolvers and shots are substitutes for the daily dose of struggle for life that the human being needs. Unused to defending himself, modern civilized man is paranoid about his security. But his interference with his own security is not only undesirable, but punishable by law. In civilized soft regime societies, the security of citizens is the business of the police. In soft regime society, and that is the fundamental difference from hard regime society, it is not the party, not a gang of miscreants that suppress the trembling majority, but everyone to one degree or another suppresses everyone. They do it for free and against their own selves. For that is the nature of the relationship. Many, however, probably better served by a soft regime society. The insignificant Winston Smith would find himself in a better position than the energetic O'Brien. Brackets. I can see Smith putting his varicose food out on the asphalt of the freeway leading to the Côte d'Azur at this very moment. Traffic, thousands of cars ahead, with the Smiths and the Julies and their children going on vacation. O'Brien, with his glasses on his nose, is sadly reading the Bible in a cell at Fleury Miragie prison. He fired his hunting rifle at his Arab immigrant neighbors because he was unable to bear the noise. Lest they forget that they live in the best of societies, the domesticated masses derive great pleasure watching dystrophic African children covered with flies and the skeletons of the Auschwitz. The moral of the demonstration is this. It is useless to try and organize any other society. Look at what happened before. Look what those attempts led to. What Marxism in Ethiopia and Hitler's fascism produced. And the frightened masses sit quietly and pollinate their brains with cheeses, wines and detergents, suggesting that they buy super delicate toilet paper and wear not black but brightly colored childish fabrics. Brackets. Aside from violent mathematization and articulation of life, there is also forced infantilization. Among all crimes, the most terrible, but not at all punishable, is this, is the crime against oneself, the failure of an individual to take advantage of his own life. Listening to silly musical noises, parking the car, engaging in unremarkable and uninteresting labor, and boom, your time on earth is out. The collective so-called civilized humanity has succeeded in creating and imposing on everyone down to the fringes of the planet a colorless, boring, stupid life devoid of real pleasures, a life of pets. Against the violence of Big Brother, the old hard regime and boots and sinister uniforms, it is still possible to rise up in a rebellion. But how can you rebel against your own weaknesses? End of preface for his book, Disciplinary Sanatorium. I think I will continue translating this book to English and reading it to you. Right now, this sort of critique is uh, commonplace, but in the 80s, and especially so in Russian language, 
It was quite a non-standard position. Many Russian writers and thinkers of the time were blinded by perestroika or they couldn't formulate anything worthwhile. And especially so, it was not trendy to critique the West, let me tell you. I think this prose is uh, at least uh, entertaining and mostly devoid of fluff. Share your emotions in the comments. See you very soon. The two-hour podcast on Tajikistan war and Moldovan war will be by the end of the month.